Hey all, thank you for tuning into Women Birders Happy Hour. My name is Hannah. I'm a birder, a woman, and someone that enjoys a good drink after a long day of birding. Women have been integral to birding since it started, but we haven't always been recognized for the contributions and impact we have. Men have dominated the guiding scene, festival circuit, leadership positions, and publications. And according to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 2011 report, in the U.S., there were over 47 million birders. The majority of these birders are college-educated, they are white, they are women, and mostly are over the age of 55. And if you put all these factors together, we create the typical birder, a white, college-educated woman over the age of 55. And that's a demographic that I often see out birding, but I don't as frequently see as a speaker, a guide, or a sole publisher. Additionally, the voices of all women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus birders are not well represented in the birding voices we hear from. So I created this show to bring in more voices. Not to say that some of the regular festival keynotes aren't great, but there is room for others. And on the show, I'm asking everyday women from all walks of life to join me to discuss their experiences, their resources, and advice that they have for others. And I want you to remember that just because you may not have experienced some of these things, like sexism or gatekeeping, doesn't mean that they aren't real issues that others face. And because some of these conversations are best had over a cocktail or a mocktail, I also create a unique cocktail for each guest in case you want to mix yourself a drink and join us for this chat. Holly Merker is well known throughout the birding community for her passion to get kids into birding and sharing her love of birds with everyone through a variety of different means. She is an educator, a guide, an author, and a speaker who feels most comfortable out looking for birds. So I sometimes call Tufted Titmouse the Mickey Mouse bird because of their big, black, inquisitive eye. They're a small songbird in North America in the tit and chickadee family. Their scientific name, which I'm probably going to butcher and say... Baolophus by color means small crest two colored. They're about six inches long with a white front gray upper body that is outlined with rust colored flanks and they also have a little black smudge on their forehead. Very cute little bird. If you get a chance to come go to the eastern U.S. I hope you get a chance to see one. Their call is a great mnemonic. Um, they say Peter, 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 and are very vocal. They're found in deciduous and mixed forests in the eastern U.S., as well as a common garden bird in their range. They are not a migratory species, but the species may have extended their range due to the abundance of bird feeders. They feed on berries, nuts, seeds, small fruits, insects, and other small invertebrates. And caterpillars do compose a large part of their diet during the summers. And they like to store food that they find in feeders, and they usually do so within 130 feet from that feeder. So titmouse do seem to be curious about humans and will sometimes perch on window ledges and will also do so to seek prey in wasp nests. I used to have one that would come to my office window when I was working in Houston and it would, I always thought it was trying to get the spiders out of the spider webs, um, but it might've just been looking at me, who knows? And they nest in a hole in trees, natural cavities, and will readily use offered nest boxes as well, but they can't build their own cavity. And they line that cavity with soft materials and will even steal hair from live animals like dogs. So to make your tufted titmouse, what you'll need is two ounces of gin, four ounces of rose lemonade tonic, one ounce of hypnotic, and one lemon wheel and ice. 
So what you'll do is fill your glass with ice, add the gin, top it with tonic. You can lightly stir it up and then carefully pour in the hypnotic and then garnish with a lemon wedge. This is a very flavorful, uh, beautiful cocktail, and it really focuses on the most obvious feature of this bird, their beautiful blue-gray and peach coloration. Uh, they're a light and fun bird, and I thought this take on a gin and tonic would best represent this beloved species. So please grab a glass and enjoy learning more about holly. Well, Holly, it was such a joy to meet you last year at the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival, and I'm so happy to have you on this episode. Would you please tell everyone who you are? Yeah. Hi, Hannah. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you today. It's really great. Um, so I'm Holly Merker, and I live in the Philadelphia suburbs, the western suburbs of Philly. And um, so I wear many hats, <laughs> so um, especially in the birding community and professionally, I've been lucky enough to make birding part of what I do professionally now. So um, I am a uh, professional birding guide. I do some guiding for a couple different organizations, um, including Hillstar Nature, um, where you can find me guiding a couple of trips each year domestically and maybe to Uganda next year. We'll see. Um, but also I am a session director for National Audubon's Hog Island in Maine, um, a, a camp uh, that is just a fabulous experience um, for people looking to learn more about birds, but also be in a community of bird people. Um, so, uh, and, and I find a lot of joy there. Um, I also am a, a director for the American Birding Association's teen camp, Camp Delaware Bay. Um, and we just finished our session. Uh, we had um, 15 kids from across the U.S. that attend um, to learn about birds and uh, be together and, and find other young people to uh, connect with. So that's really exciting. I've been a professional environmental educator for almost 20 years now um, to go along with my professional bird guiding. Um, and gosh, uh, I get myself involved with a lot of different local organizations here. Um, I'm a hawk counter voluntar voluntarily uh, for Hawk Mountain Sanctuary here in Pennsylvania and also on the board there. Um, and I helped uh, co-found the Frontiers in Ornithology Symposium, which is a symposium for students uh, to learn about cutting edge technology in avian science and how to make your passion for birds uh, something that could either be part of your vocation or avocation and take it to the next level. So uh, we'll be back on track with that coming up in 2023. And recently, I founded the Mindful Birding Network, which is as a group of people coming together uh, to uh, experience and talk about and share and support each other in this practice of something called mindful birding. And that sort of dovetails into my um, current passion professionally, um, and that is ornotherapy. So I'm one of the co-authors of the book, Ornotherapy for Your Mind, Body, and Soul, which centers around using birds for our own overall well-being and guiding um, ourselves through deeper connections to birds for the wellness benefits that 
birding and and frankly the natural world provide to us anytime we need it. Wow. So you really do touch a lot of different components of the birding community. A lot of things, you know, that I didn't really even know about, like the, you know, I've heard of the Frontiers program mm -hmm. before, and I've heard of the ABA, um, you know, the kids camps and everything, but I, I wasn't a young birder, so I didn't really get a chance to experience all that, but I am really interested in the Hog Island stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly tell us about the Hog Island camps? Oh, yeah, sure. So it's one of my favorite things. In fact, I'm getting ready to go up there and I'll be an instructor for a session next week up there called uh, Migration in Monhegan. So Hog Island um, was founded uh, by National Audubon a long while ago, back in the 1930s, actually. And it's an island that National Audubon owns off the mid coast of Maine. And they offer sessions for adults to go to camp uh, for uh like a, a five night, ex six day experience. And it's um, all inclusive. And it's all about connecting to other birders, to learning from um, the instructors that are on staff about different, each week has a different topic. So um, the session that I direct is in June and it's called The Joy of Birding. Um, so it's a lot of introduction to the joys of birding um, and learning about birding by ear and how to identify. But then like this next session that I'm gonna be doing um, coming up soon is going to, as an instructor is going to be this experience with migratory birds in fall. And so it, it's really special. We live on an island for, like I said, it's like this five night experience. And, you know, people come to us and they get off the boat there and by the, you know, they're kind of bringing their hectic lives with them. You could just see it in their body language. But by the second or third day, all of a sudden that stress starts melting away. And by the end of the week, everybody is just in this Zen-like space uh, and it's really magical. So I encourage all of your listeners to look it up. It, I think it's hogisland.org or hog, I should know the website, but it's easy to Google and they're wonderful people, wonderful food too. So yeah, I'm definitely going to have to pressure Eric into going with me sometime. I've been like, you know, scrolling through the website periodically and I look and it's like, oh, every camp I want to go to is full. So I need to like, <laughs> jump on it, set a reminder in my calendar to hit it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's really something for everyone. They have an arts and birding, you know, so you can learn it. And then they have the photography component. They have teen camps, which are incredible. Kids get to go sit on an island with the puffins and the researchers. So wow. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. Well, so let's uh, get back a little further in your personal history and let's talk about how you yeah. became a birder in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, like I've always been interested in nature and some of my earliest memories from my childhood are those experiences in nature and just pouring through Ranger Rick magazine and just being like totally amazed by, you know, the small and the large outside my doors. And, and I was a kid that grew up in an era when free play in nature was expected and demanded. We, you know, went outside and you didn't come in until literally you heard that dinner bell ringing for you. And so um, this kind of led me down a path to want to learn more. But, you know, I, I loved birds, but I didn't know there was such a thing as birding. I didn't know that other people liked birds too. And I didn't really figure that out until I was much older, like actually in college. 
Um, like I had, I had done some nature camps when I was a kid and that was really rewarding for me, but I never met anybody who could identify birds. I knew um, my mom always had bird feeders and we had like a field guide, but I just thought that this is something you do at home. I didn't know that there were groups of people. And I'm a little sad about that because I grew up in a town that has a very old bird club. Um, but also I think like, you know, at the time being a young female, it's harder to find that kind of mentorship um, as a birder. And I think things are changing. This is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about fostering youth birding is because we're, you know, there are people like us out there that want to help bring them into the community and offer them the experiences, not just to learn about birds and birding, but also connect to each other and to connect, connect to other people who can make a difference in their lives. And so, um, so that's why I'm passionate about it because like you, I didn't have that experience, even though I loved birds and nature. And in college, I um, ended up meeting some friends who I discovered like birds too. And we visited Hawk Mountain Sanctuary here in Pennsylvania, went out looking for warblers. Um, and it wasn't until I was um, early, like a couple years, well, maybe like a year after I got married, I, mo I had moved to another state. I lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and it was completely different from where I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. And in order to connect with the landscape there, I found myself using birds um, to kind of get to know the world around me. I had a hard time making other friends. I wasn't living near family and the birds in my own backyard became my friends. And, and I, you know, once, once I started to see species I'd never seen before where I grew up, I kind of just went down a rabbit hole and I'm still going down and, <laughs> and I'm not looking to come out anytime soon. And I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, I've been telling people that uh, birding an ornithology class that I took in college, that's what ruined my life. So now <laughs> I have to spend the rest of my life, you know, just on the search for this ten, these 10,000 species that we have. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so, um, so you guide and you, you know, you teach classes and things like that. But when you're out on your own or, you know, with a couple friends, what does just a fun day of birding look like to you? Gosh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it every I bird every day, and so every day is it's a variable birding experience. Um, but I love going out with friends and exploring new areas, finding new landscapes, looking at how birds use uh, these landscapes and and how everything's connected in these habitats. Um, and so, um, like, for example, tomorrow I have a birding trip planned to um, coastal New Jersey with some friends, birding friends. And I'm really excited because, you know, it's just this connectedness. It's a shared passion with like minded people um, and uh, just the joy of that, like being with other people and and going out and it's, you know, that constant game of hide and seek with the birds, that constant quest of what are we going to see? But even if we don't see a whole lot, I, I know we'll be very satisfied with what we do see because it's about that experience. It's about that journey of looking, of finding, of, of appreciating uh, the moment and just being together and being in that special place that nature has to offer us. Well, I hope you do get to see some cool things out there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so who or what has been the most influential thing in your birding? Well, this was actually a really difficult question for me to, to, to answer, Hannah, and I thought a lot about this, um, and I can't pinpoint any one person that I could mention here, um, 
But I will say um, it's honestly been eBird. <laughs> um, so um, eBird has been a large part of my life for a long while now. So I discovered the eBird project shortly after it was launched in 2003 as an eBird user. And um, at that time, I had already been participating in citizen science projects offered by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And back in 2003, eBird was kind of wonky. We were all still using dial-up back then, you know, and um, the mapping wasn't good. And it just, you know, it wasn't what it is today, how we know eBird today. In 2005, um, I was invited to become a statewide reviewer for Pennsylvania, and um, I thought it a daunting prospect. I didn't think I was a good enough birder, accomplished enough birder at that time, you know, um, and I and I had a lot of reservations, but um, I I decided that I I should take this this challenge, <laughs> a personal challenge, and I and I'm so glad I did because I have learned so much about birds, about distribution, about status, but I've also had incredible interactions with other e-birders through the 17 years I've been an e-bird reviewer. Um, and I have to say the project itself has grown um, and shaped the birder that I am in that um, I am able to pay back um, all the effort I put into my birding experiences. And so when I'm out birding, I can contribute, I can pay forward and make a difference. And because this, this global database is so powerful now, and we know so much more about birds than we ever did before, um, it feels great to have been part of that. And I know you, you're an e-birder as well, and, and you understand like, when you submit a checklist, there's there's kind of like this thrill of being able to hit that submit button and feel like, you know, I had a great time birding today, but I also know that this is going to benefit research, even if it's just birds in my own backyard, because what's common now might not be common in a hundred years, you know? So it's just being able to contribute, but also having these souvenirs that eBird checklists and our my eBird <laughs> profile allows us to go back and revisit moments with friends, to you know share our imagery if we take photos um, with other people, with researchers, and I love sound recording. So that's another part of it. And because eBird provides us outlets and tools to do this, um, it really has shaped my understanding of bird life and and thinking about how birds interact with habitats, but also how we are all connected. So, so that I, so that I, I really credit eBird a lot, even though I've been birding a long time before eBird existed and I've had a lot of other um, significant things occur along the way. This is, it has been really pivotal and, and really has shaped the birder that I am today um, in so many ways. That, that was an incredible answer, Holly. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I feel like eBird a lot of times is like totally undervalued. Like we, Eric and I, you know, we get so much from it and we're constantly checking it and everything. And, you know, I feel like that a lot of people do the same thing, but just, you know, don't really sit down and think about like how much of an amazing tool it is and how it's come so far in the last couple of years. So that was a beautiful tribute to eBird. 
<laughs> oh gosh. Well, I mean, I feel lucky to have been with it along this journey and have watched it grow. It feels somewhat like an like an entity, like a child almost. I'm sure you know the project leaders that have created this incredible living database, really, um, that has really expanded what we know about birds, but also provided a sense of community for people to connect with each other so that we can share with each other. And you know, especially during the pandemic, we all needed that sense of connectedness. And for birds, they were our common ground, right? And they they strung us together and we were, you know, benefiting from seeing what other people were seeing because we couldn't get together. Like, I don't know about where you are, but all the group birding that in my area, you know, really all the bird clubs, uh, all of our trips were off the table and same thing with all of the organizations that I worked for. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like eBird has, has filled a gap um, in so many ways. Um, that was so needed at the right time. Um, and, and you know, it does have, it come with some challenges, which maybe we'll talk about a little later, but you know, I do credit it for, for being um, instrumental in, in who the birder that I am today. That's awesome. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, what has been your experience as a woman birder? Oh gosh. Well, it's really been a mixed bag, Hannah, I will say. Um, so, you know, when I first started becoming an avid birder, um, you know, beyond just watching birds and feeding birds in my own backyard and, and actively seeking out opportunities to explore and find more birds, I was living in Virginia at the time and I had no idea that there was sexism in birding. I mean, you know, this typical stereotype really for bird watchers were, you know, little old ladies in their backyard, like bird feeding. So I, I was a little stunned when I when I moved to Pennsylvania. Um, you know, this was 25 years ago, and I met some uh, male birders. And one of the first things that was when they saw that I was passionate, avid birder um, was, oh, well, uh, there's this bird club that you can join. Oh, and, and they allow women now. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean they allow women now? And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. They allow women now. They they passed, you know, this uh, referendum or whatever. And now women are allowed to join the club. And I'm thinking, wait a second. You mean to tell me that women weren't allowed in a bird club? Like, what's going on here, you know? Um, and I was a little bit taken aback by that. Um, and so I was like, well, actually, I don't want to be a part of that bird club. Because um, clearly it's not a place for me if they just in, you know, I had been like 20 some years since then. But still, I was like, mm, that really was a big turnoff. And it was my first awakening to um, this this issue of, of, of that. This hasn't always been um, an open community for females. And I was um, made aware of stories of women in my community who were um, probably 30 or 40, actually probably 50 years older than me, um, who had who were asked to bring when they found a rare bird. Well, you need to have a male with you. Do you have a nephew or something you could bring along to see the bird, too? And I was stunned by this. You know, I mean, hearing this and this isn't all that long ago, I'm talking 25 years ago. OK, so so as a young female and I was you know, I wasn't even 30 then um, I was I, I thought that maybe there wasn't a place for me in this community. I knew I loved birds. I knew I loved being around people that loved birds, but I started to think about things differently. So I kind, I didn't I didn't join that club right off the bat. Um 
got a unique history here, which I'll share with you. Um, in that years later, um, a good friend of mine, a male birder who's been incredibly supportive of female birders, um, said to me, I'd really love for you to join this, this bird club. I'll give it a name, the DVOC, and, and it's a Delaware Valley Ornithological Club. And I said, you know, I haven't joined and here's why. And he said, but we recognize our past and we know it wasn't, wasn't a great past, but we want to move forward and change that. And we're looking to make changes and we need people like you to help bring us forward. And I thought about it and he said, I'm gifting you the membership. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he did. And I joined and I was invited to be on the conservation committee and I became very involved with this organization through the years and, and served on their board of directors or what's called their council. Um, and I have to say that today, the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club is one of the most progressive, one of the most diverse birding clubs in the country. And it has this history that I just shared with you. But this is why birding is so wonderful, because we're recognizing our problems that, and we're you know honoring that, but also making a difference moving forward. So that's my little bit about um, that and and what it was like being suddenly aware of, of this issue. However, I will say this, because I'm a female, I have had a lot of doors open to me um, in the birding community um, as a professional guide, also, because um, I, you know, I've actually had professional birding tour companies come to me and say, we would love to expand the females on our staff, you know, and we would love, you know, this kind of thing. So it's, um, that is, that has been wonderful. Uh, in addition to that, um, I um, have been offered opportunities to, to kind of level the playing field when it comes to gender. Um, I was uh, one of the first female voting member of my state's bird records committee. I ended up becoming the chair of that bird records committee um, and served in that role for over two years. Um, and I do believe it, you know, being a female does open some doors um, for us. And I feel like a lot of women are shy or aren't willing to take these risks of putting themselves out there um, to become eBird reviewers, um, to become records committee members. I think this is changing, um, but I know that I, as a female birder, one of the things I like to do is support other females in birding and 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 and, and non-binary people as well um, to kind of you know to kind of elevate or, or bring us all together um, and and give uh, people other than the traditional. Um, white male birders that we, you know, has been dominating some of like the birding industry and bird records committees for so long is to give these people a voice. And, and I feel like we need to be more confident in ourselves because I've had many women turn me down when I've asked them to submit to the records committee to become a member, or even as I've tried to recruit one of my roles as statewide coordinator for eBird in Pennsylvania is to recruit um, other eBird reviewers to, to bring new reviewers on board. And um, it's been hard. A lot of the women say no. <laughs> Either we're really smart about <laughs> taking on more volunteer work or you know what, I don't know. But so I like to encourage women to, to take a chance 
give yourself um, a chance, like take some risks um, when it comes to birding um, and, and the things that you can do um, and have confidence in what you know and be willing to um, explore what you don't know and learn from it because it's been really rewarding to take that that kind of path for myself. Well, that's that's great. Um, I have a question about the eBird reviewer uh, process is because, mm-hmm. I, you know, I did some research a couple of years ago about why women, you know, aren't contributing and being a part of this, um, like guiding mostly was mm-hmm. kind of the idea there. Um, but is there like a webinar that eBird offers that's like, this is what it's like to be a reviewer? Because I think that's a lot of the um, huh. barrier there is because like, if I'm going to be a reviewer, I don't know what I'm getting into, you know, in the exactly. first place. Yeah. If there is a webinar, I have to say, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know about it. Um, there might be, (laughs) I mean, I don't know either. (laughs) The Ebert Ebert team has done a really good job in recent years in providing a lot more, um, education and support to the Ebert review team globally, because there's thousands of Ebert reviewers, you know, um, across the globe. Um, but, um, I like to, like, they give us like, I, um, like kind of a how-to or eBird review tools document that's many pages long that we can go through. But I also like to share what the expectations are as a reviewer when I'm onboarding somebody new. Uh, Many of them already know because typically it's somebody who's an avid eBirder in a region who has really great communication skills, um, who also understands bird status and distribution in their region. So, but then the time commitment, you know, we talk a little bit about that because that's honestly one of the the more difficult things today because of the volume of checklists coming in is keeping on top of the review queue. (laughs) So... Well, that's awesome that you're, you know, helping these folks get in and and being supported. So thinking about beginning birders, so you've done a lot of work with beginners and and young um, birders. Is there a couple uh, things that you can think of that, you know, like I could do to be more supportive of beginners? Oh, gosh. And I think you already are. What you're doing right here is supportive to new and beginning birders because you are opening doors and windows um, by sharing uh, other people's experiences and your own insights. And I think that is really what's important. Um, And to focus on being yourself. I mean, you know, to be encouraging, to be accepting, and and you already do all these things. But this is like, if I'm thinking about, um, I first off, like, I love working with beginner birders, because they teach me something about birds, right? I've been birding for a long time. And even if, like, this is an example, like, I've had people show me a behavior that I have never noticed before. And these people are people that say, well, I'm not a birder, but then they teach me something that they're noticing about the Cardinal in their yard. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this person is like, they don't define themselves as a birder, but yet they have studied the Cardinal. So embrace what you know you know, and, and, and feel confident in that. And just being, again, encouraging and um, accepting of our differences as birders and our pace, um, take the pressure off identifying every single bird we see. I think that that's something that people appreciate. Sometimes when people are coming into birding, they think 
they have to fit a certain model. And part of that model to be a birder is that I have to identify every bird I see. And you and I both know that's not always possible. But what we can do is, is savor the moments we have with those birds. And we are learning. Our brain is processing, even if it's a fleeting glimpse. We're learning. Even if we can't really identify that bird, we're learning something about it. And all these pieces of the puzzle come together to create this, what we know about birds. And so that's an exciting thing. And just getting to know the birds, again, right outside our own doors, once you start to learn the birds really well, right outside your own back, in your own backyard or in your own little local patch, that really will um, build on your, your level of skill in birding as an observer and understanding. Awesome. So do you feel that you found your place in the birding community? <laughs> Well, I look at that as like a journey. And so I feel like I've been in many places in the birding community um, and I'm still traveling around and and learning things new. Um, and so, you know, this is like an evolution. You know, we you know, my place 25 years ago is very different than my place today and or my place 10 years ago. So I'm constantly traveling to new places in the birding community um, and finding different spaces in which to share my enthusiasm or joy or my identification skills or, or you know, teaching people. Um, and I love that about birding because there's so much opportunity out there um, for new experiences and discoveries. And we really only know just a little bit about birds, really. We think we know a lot, you know, at this point as, as humans. Actually, there's so much more to, to learn about these wondrous creatures. And, and that's what's really exciting. So let's talk about those creatures a little bit. I feel like we've been yeah. dancing around birds. But tell me, what has been your most memorable bird or birding experience? You know, I've had many and it's really hard to pinpoint. Um, but I'll share with you a story about a bird that brought me hope during a really difficult time in my life. Um, so 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. I was a very young mom. And um, this was kind of, uh, you know, let's just say it, it was a game changer for me. I was out of the blue, unexpected, no family history. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I, I was lucky because I was already a birder. Um, I was already a birder avid enough that I went on a pelagic when I was five months into chemo, which is nuts. Cause I also had a um, compression fractures of my spine. I took my kids sledding and had a bad accident right before I was diagnosed with breast cancer, like a month before, bizarre. Just a really tough year for our family. <laughs> but, you know, losing my hair as a young woman um, was really, uh, difficult because, you know, first off, my kids expressed anxiety about that because then I would be identified as a sick person. And, and frankly, we're not used to seeing young bald women. And it wasn't like it was a choice. I wasn't shaving my head or something. It was something that was going to happen. But it was also part of the healing process or getting or, or, or my my um, combat, you know, against this disease was this chemotherapy. Um, so when I lost my hair, I, you know, it, it, it all fell out kind of at once. It was a bizarre thing. I didn't 
didn't know how that was going to happen. You know, you keep waiting for it to happen. And it, it really did come out in chunk, 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 chunk. And it was weird. And when it came out, I was like looking at this pile of hair because I kind of just it was start doing it was just falling out that I just kind of started pulling it out because it was falling in my hands, you know, <laughs> Um and I didn't know what to do with that hair. Do you throw it away? Because that seems weird. It's like, it's it's a huge loss, you know? Um, I hate to sound vain about it, but it's like, it's part of the, the loss that you go through when you're going through a diagnosis like this. There's a loss, of, you know, you're grieving. Um, and I wanted to honor that. And I, and, I, and I felt weird about throwing it in the trash. It felt super weird to save it too, but I did. I put it into a bag and I set it on the corner and you know, within a week or so, um, after I adjusted to the processing this loss a little bit better um, through birds, by the way, I ended up realizing that it was spring. And if, um, you know, you put hair from your dog's hairbrush out in spring or whatever, even some for your own hairbrush, maybe the birds might take it and use it for nesting material. And so that's what I did. I, I took part of that hair and I put it into a suet cage and I hung it outside my kitchen window because I knew that, you know, I was going through chemo. I had multiple surgeries. I had, I was wearing a brace from the neck down <laughs> in addition from this spinal injury. And I thought at least maybe I can make it to the kitchen window once a day. And one of these days I got super lucky because as I was standing at the kitchen sink, looking out the window, a tufted titmouse, which is a bird that's common in my area, came and started looking, started hopping all around the suet cage and started looking and started pulling little bits of my hair out. And it ultimately pulled out a bunch of strands of my hair and carried it away to repurpose it for new life. And in that moment, my loss felt so much less significant and it, and it felt purposeful, this loss of my hair. And I, and I really saw a lot of hope in that very moment and in that bird. So that's, that's one of the most inspiring, um, inspiring moments with a bird I've ever had. Um, and I, and I still can see it in my mind's eye so clearly. And I cling on to that moment when I need a reminder, uh, when life gets hard, when I'm stressed out of the beauty, the gifts that birds can provide us. Well, thank you for sharing that, Holly. I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, you're in recovery or I'm, I suppose it's been long <laughs> well, enough that, you know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 20 years out now. So I'm very grateful to be here chatting with you um, and, and grateful to the birds for being my companion along that journey. Well, so you've been a lot of places guiding and just on your own, I imagine. What is a place that you think everyone should get to? <laughs> Oh, gosh. You know, I, I this was a question that I really have no great answer for because I've I've been lucky enough to witness some amazing spectacles of bird life in so many different places now because birds are part of my lifestyle um, and they go with me. I, I take this 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 passion, this hobby with me wherever I go. So some days it's just even into my own backyard. So I like to say that Whereas we can find ourselves going on wonderful vacations or trips that are centered around birds, it's really the birds right outside in our own neighborhoods, in our own local patches that I like to celebrate because these are part of our natural landscapes. And I feel like we we are driven to like 
go find more, you know, like go out and, you know, get as many birds on a checklist or we've got to go pursue new life birds here. And then we got to go there. We almost overtask ourselves as birders and it's so much fun, but also allowing ourselves to enjoy um, these moments with the birds right outside our own windows and doors. So that that's pretty much what I would say is like, Go on as many adventures and take birds in your back pocket wherever you go in life, wherever life takes you. But celebrate the the common, the ordinary birds in your own in your own neighborhood. That's awesome. Yeah, and everybody has you know special birds that are in their neighborhoods that aren't in somebody else's neighborhood. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because like I'll be thinking about your you know you've got rent hits out there, <laughs> and I would love to. See- <laughs> you know, um, and all the, the wonderful birds out in Oregon. And, you know, and so my cardinal would be a fun bird for you to sit for an hour and over a drink and sip and, and have, you know, think about, right? You know, so. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've kind of talked about some of the changes that have happened in the, the past in the birding community, but what would you like to yeah. see in the future? Yeah, so I love the the direction that birding is going in that we are becoming so much more um, inviting, welcoming, inclusive. There's so many more opportunities for people that love birds now. And that's part of this is building opportunities for people to connect, for people to have these experiences of all with birds in nature so that they can then share that with other people. Um, and, and so, but I do think that at inclusivity um, goes beyond just gender and race and uh, religion and politics. I, as, I also think it goes into uh, birding styles. And right now I feel that there is kind of a little bit of friction in our birding community about each other's birding styles. Um, and I see this with a lot of frustration um, on some of the, you know, the, the birding chat groups, um, the different um, resources for rare bird out, you know, uh, information. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, everybody has their own birding style. You know, there's no one size fits all for birding. We all come to this hobby for different reasons. We all started in different places. We're all at different points in our uh, skill level or, you know, and, and that may change. It evolves through time. And that we, you know, just need to be accepting of not just who we are, but also, again, these birding styles. Um, and I think that right now, that's one of my bigger concerns because I see a lot of tension um, I see it in social media, especially, and um, I think we need to be accepting because I think there is, and where I see this specifically, I'll give an example. If, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, it's, you know, there are some people that choose to um, protect a bird or a habitat and don't, aren't, aren't getting the word out right away right? They're not putting it on eBird. They're not putting it on rare bird alerts. And they're, that's their birding style is to kind of make sure that they keep um, the safety of the birds as the top priority. There's also, and, and so that, that, is, that is not always, that, that gets a lot of negative feedback from a lot of people. Um, and 
And so we're not accepting of each other's choices, even when it comes to ethical decisions. Um, and I know birding ethics is a very complicated um, thing. I actually was on the ABA's um, Recording Standards and Ethics Committee and helped um, was one of the team of uh, six members who helped revise the recent Code of Birding Ethics. And so I've thought a lot about ethics. Um, and, and so I feel like, you know, we're, we're we are, we're, we're teaching each other, but also sometimes we're not so good at accepting that. And we're also not accepting of people who aren't dialed into the birding community, like meaning they're not, people choose not to be on some of these social media tools that allow instant messaging to go out about a rare bird. And then those people are really given a hard time for not sharing. Um, but meanwhile, it's just that their style is not to, you know, they're not within that kind of community. And then there are people that I find, and this has been something that's really kind of, I touched on this a little bit before, but I meet a lot of people that tell me, oh, but I'm not a birder. I just like birds and I watch birds. And I, I'm, I, you know, I kind of look quizzically because I would identify that person as a birder and but they see birding as something very competitive. You have to be, you know, you have to wear a bird's uniform. You know, you have to every, you have to fit this mold of, oh, I, I list birds on eBird. You know, um, I, I go out and I have this many life birds, like their self-worth, our productivity is measured by how many birds we can find or what our life looks, looks like. And meanwhile, actually, these people are what I call birders. And that, that kind of is what I'm getting to when I say we need to be accepting of each other's birding sets, because if there are people that are actually birders by how I define a birder saying that they're not birders and choosing not to identify themselves as a birder, that's kind of a problem to me, you know? Um, and so um, this is where I think, you know, the birding community is needing to be a little bit more understanding of everybody's individual birding style. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, um, that's one thing that, that I think Eric and I have tried to, you know, tell the world in our, our stuff is that like, you know, you can call yourself a birder as long as you appreciate birds in, in some sort of way, you know, as long as you're not actively harming them and, you know, you appreciate birds, like call yourself a birder. We don't need to, you know, pick and choose who's a birder and who's not a birder. Like mm -hmm. who's the ultimate authority on that anyway is nobody. <laughs> Right. Exactly. But they, but people do feel that pressure that there is like kind of a one size fits all. This is what a birder is. And you have to do X, Y, and Z, and you have to be at this skill level to be a birder. And, and, and so again, it's like accepting everybody for who they are and also for their birding styles and, and, and kind of embracing that not everybody is going to bird the same way, you know, that not everybody's going to be as dialed into these different networks um, and that we need to kind of respect that and not, um, you know, kind of, there are some, some situations where these types of birders who aren't as um, engaged in the community are, they're kind of ostracized for that. And that's, that's not, and that's where I think some of this comes from. And, and so, yeah, that, that's where I think, um, you know, as far as your question is concerned, that that's where I think um, things need to go. Yeah. And I, I hope we can move towards a more accepting community as well. So mm -hmm. what do you think has been the most valuable thing you've learned from birding? 
Oh gosh. <laughs> well, that birds can help us um, heal. They can help uh, bring us happiness. They can um, bring us to new uh, lifelong friends <laughs> that, uh, you know, there, there's just so much um, that birds and birding bring into our lives. Um, it, it, it Really, uh, there's no one single thing. Um, it's just a huge, great, big, amazing package. And I feel like we're so lucky. Um, we're so lucky to love birds, to be birders, because we have this in our lives. And, you know, I shared that I utilized this as part of my therapeutic process and consider myself, you know, healed, if you will, from breast cancer in part because of birds, because they were there for me. They were the constant companion I needed along that journey. Um, and we know that there are scientific um, benefits to being in nature. It, it has it to biochemically and also physically. So that there, it, beyond the fact that, you know, we, we can feel the calm and centering and grounding that birding can bring to us, um, it also does have these immeasurable benefits to our overall well-being, our immune system. So I do believe that birds helped me heal along my journey and have brought me um, a lot of peace during very difficult times in my life. And I hope that birds will be that that sense of go-to medicine or, you know, that sense of peace and grounding for, for all people. Well, thank you so much, Holly, for sharing everything that you have with me. It's, you know, been so great to get to know you more. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you and the cool things that you do, how would they do that? Oh, gosh. So, well, I do have Instagram at Holly Merker is my um, Instagram handle. Um, and um, I there's a Facebook group called Ornotherapy where people can come together and share the joy of birds and what birds bring into their lives. Um, as far as like the, the what I was just talking about, the wellness aspect um, and uh, uh, also all these other organizations that I talked about. The Mindful Birding Network is another way, another place to connect with me. Um, and of course, on Hog Island or Hill Star Nature or ABA <laughs> Young Birders Camp. Yeah, I get around. So, <laughs> so thank you so much, Hannah. It was so fun to talk to you today and share our love of birds. <laughs> well, thank you, Holly. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. So thank you so much, Holly, for joining me for this podcast. It was so fun to learn about you. And I know you do so many amazing things in the birding community. So thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you all for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to me. If you'd like to connect with me on socials, you can do so by following me on Instagram at Hannah Goes Birding. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you can email me at WomenBirders at gmail.com. I also have resources and information on GoBurningPodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this chat, and I look forward to seeing you at the next happy hour.